All right, so two weeks ago, I introduced the topic of life and humanity and this present reality that we all live in, this, this life, from a philosophical perspective, as informed from uh, or by God's word, right? Kind of the purpose of life in, in general. God being the source and sustainer of life, according to the Bible. Apart from him, there would be no life at all. So life in general, it matters to God. Life is important. And God is intimately involved in life, being the source and sustainer of life. So whether from, from grass to sparrows to humans, the pinnacle of God's creation, which are replicas that he made of himself, humans. And last week, we honed in a little bit more on, on what the Bible says about humans as creatures uh, we're all built out of the same stuff. We're made out of the same materials as, as the rest of the world. And essentially, according to Genesis, even the name Adam refers to the fact that we're dirt things. We're mud creatures. But we're mud creatures that have been inhabited by the life-giving breath of God because we are living, breathing replicas of him. We have authority to rule the earth on his behalf. That's all in Genesis one and two. And in Genesis three, you see how humans have made a mess of things. You see how it started. And God has promised to restore everything, to restore humans. And, and he, he says that that starts with Christ. As we read through scripture, and I'm kind of do, doing a quick overview here. And today, we are, as the church, we're living examples and testaments, we're witnesses to the transformative power of Christ, the fact that he is real and alive. We, the fact that we're here today together is a testament to that. And that he's living and working among us, through us. That we may be just mud and spit, but when we're used in the hands of Jesus, we can be used as agents of restoration and healing and life in the world around us. So today we're going to be continuing on that topic of humanity, and I kind of alluded in the last couple of weeks, we're going to be focusing more on what it means for humans to, be, to live forever, to be eternal beings. And we'll be camping out primarily in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that's going to be our main passage today if you want to find your place there. It's a great chapter. And we've established that humans are immortal, though our bodies are, are corrupted and, and therefore mortal. These are dying mortal bodies. What happens to the intangible, immaterial essence of a person when their body dies is not really clear in Scripture. I'm going to just tell you that right off the bat. It's, not, it's clear that people do survive their bodies. There are, it sh, it sh, it, the Bible tells us of people living and even interacting with the world after their bodies die, however, only in very rare and very notable examples. There, there are stories of people doing that because it's so rare and notable. The Bible tells us about when those happen. And it's always in a very um, meaningful way. Otherwise, it's very rare, almost never happens for, for those you know, souls or spirits to be interacting with the physical world. And very little attention in the Bible is really given to this sort of state of existence. As interesting as it may be to us, it is to me anyway, and there are countless TV shows and movies and, and people who are devoting their whole lives into, you know, the spiritual realm and, and trying to explore that, those concepts. 
the Bible doesn't give nearly so, uh, so much focus to it. More focus is given to a future culmination of God's promises to humanity, the return of mankind and the restoration of humans to, to the Eden ideal, um, humans to be restored to creation and the life that we were made for. The ultimate goal of humans throughout the story of the Bible is not so much to escape earth, to get to heaven, but rather to return to that ideal of Eden, which is an expression of heaven on earth, an overlapping of heaven and earth, where humans are living in harmony with God and with each other. And the spiritual and physical realms are in in harmony with each other, not opposed to each other. That's where humans came from, the Garden of Eden. That's the ideal that's described. And that's where we're going. If if you uh, were here during the music when Amelia read from Revelation, that's the, the picture in Revelation chapter 21. Now, if you were looking for one passage in the New Testament to give you a systematic presentation of what the New Testament writers believe is what I would call eschatological anthropology, so the future of humans. You know, what's the end goal of, or what's the end state of humanity? This, this chapter is a pretty good candidate for that. Uh, so if you're wondering what Paul's view, anyway, is on the purpose and future of humanity, this passage will tell you. It's a very thick passage, so we won't really have time to explore every interesting little thing in this chapter along the way, but we'll wade through it together and I think make sense of it as a whole. So let's just dive in. Verse 1. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believe for nothing. <laughs> so he's basically, Paul is starting off this, this chapter with a concise summary of the whole gospel message. Uh, which Paul is saying he had brought to them in the first place. Verse 3, I had delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. (coughs) And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. I feel like this is a little, Paul is sort of getting off on a little tangent here uh, in verses 8 through 11, starting to talk about himself a little bit, and then he changes his mind back and says, it doesn't matter whether it's me or whoever, whoever brought you the gospel, we're all, he's appealing to their mutual commitment to following Jesus, whether it's because of his testimony that he brought to them or someone else's. And with that established, he's established, hey, we're all, uh, in verse 11, we're all, you know, followers of Jesus. We're all believing in the same thing. And then he's going to, in verse 12, start to call out the logical shortcomings 
of those who denied the resurrection. He says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Presumably speaking of other humans. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we bore witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. That's pretty flawless logic when he lays it out like that. It's pretty obvious. Uh, But for some, apparently, the resurrection is a really important stumbling block or a really significant stumbling block. Part of this might be because of Greek thought or Greek influence on thought about this topic. A particularly Platonic philosophy is really what's credited for being, and it was already very influential at the time, It probably still is influential in your own concept of when you think of body versus spirit versus soul. Um, The Greek thought was only the soul, which, again, the Greek teaching of what a soul is is a little bit different than the teaching in Hebrew of what a soul is. It's different concepts. But in Greek thought, the soul is the intangible part of a person that survives the body, and that's all that survives. Whereas the Jewish and Christian assertion is that the body also survives, just like Christ's body survived, though transformed in some way. And that's ultimately what's preventing some of the Athenians from believing Paul. I'm going to take a break or keep your thumb in um, 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to follow along in Acts chapter 17, we're going to take a look. Just a quick little story of Paul confronting some, some Greeks in Athens. He finds them and he's presenting the gospel to them in a way that fits their context, in a way that they might understand. I'm going to start in verse 22 of Acts chapter 17. Paul's come to these people. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Again, he's appealing to their mutual, what they have in common. I'm religious, you're religious. We have that in common. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this, is, this I proclaim to you. I'm here to tell you about that God, that you know there's, there's another God out there. You don't know about him? Let me tell you about him. The God who made the world and all things in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. That right there is also very contrary to Greek thought of humans need to give stuff to the gods to appease them versus God giving to humans to give them life. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. 
Oh, that's a, I could camp out on that. Keep going. For in, in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Now, all, so far, everyone's tracking with Paul. Okay, this God's cool, awesome. Gets to this part, God raised this human from the dead. Oh, they heard about the resurrection of the dead, and some began to sneer. But others said, oh, we shall hear you again concerning this. So they're kind of divided. Some are like, that's ridiculous. This guy's nuts. They move on. Others are like, okay, well, that's really interesting. We want to hear more about this. Stumbling block. The resurrection is, is a big deal. We take it for granted sometimes. Let's get back to 1 Corinthians. Paul's logic basically is this. If God doesn't raise anybody from the dead, then he didn't raise Christ from the dead. And if you don't believe that Christ rose from the dead, then why would you bother following him? Why would you bother being a Christian? What good does it do for you to be a Christian if he isn't alive? He continues in verse 17. Again, we're back in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are to be pitied. In other words, being a Christian is just not the most logical or profitable way to go through life unless you believe that Jesus did raise from the dead and is alive today. In verse 20, he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So now he starts talking about fruits, which is plant terminology, terminology, as if in a field where seeds have been planted, Jesus is the first out of any of those seeds, any of those plants, to actually sprout and to bear fruit, which fulfills the purpose and completes the life cycle of that plant. Bearing fruit also means that the seed will be spread and perpetuate its life. Uh, that's another parable, though. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So a human introduced death, a human restores life. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Those enemies he's referring to are those principalities and powers from Ephesians 6.12. which says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and uh, the spiritual forces of darkness and wickedness. 
Those are the enemies. And in verse 26, he says, the last enemy, it's not a person, it's death. The last enemy to be abolished is death. The ultimate victory will be claimed once death is no more. Once death no longer has authority, no claim over life, because instead Christ claims that authority. He says in verse 27, he has put all things in subjugation under his feet, including death. But when he says all things are put in subject, excuse me, subjugation, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjugation to him. God the Father is not subject to the Son. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. He just wanted to make sure that's clarified. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brothers, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? I really want to know more about that story, those wild beasts. We don't know if that's literal, if he was fighting animals, or if that's a metaphor for some other authorities he was struggling against. Either way, it, was a, it sounds interesting. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become righteously sober-minded and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. There's people among you, people in your churches who don't know about God. That shouldn't be the case. Shame on you. So, Paul has ventured into some pretty thick theology here. He's talking now about Jesus and the the Son and the Father. And um, Again, I really want to know more about those wild beasts. But the underlying message is still that Following Christ is pointless unless he's alive. And the way that we live should be a reflection on a mindset on eternity rather than on how much pleasure we can eke out of this short time that we have in the ground as seats because of Christ's authority. Let's keep going. Verse 35. Someone, but someone will say, it's a hypothetical. Well, what if someone says, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? (laughs) I just want to pause there and say, that's me. (laughs) I'm guilty. I want to know. Don't you? I want to know what my body will be like. How are we going to be changed? How How are the dead going to be raised? And now, in verse 36, he says, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And to be fair, I don't, I don't think he's using that word fool to refer to people who are just curious about what will happen. Rather, to someone who argues that once a body dies or a body is destroyed, that it can't be recovered, that God couldn't restore someone's body if it were cremated or something like that. He's saying that those people are being silly. (laughs) To the contrary, he's actually saying it's necessary for the old body to pass away so that the new one may grow. He goes back to that analogy of sowing a field, planting seeds. He compares the dying human body to the seed of a plant. 
Have you ever seen what happens to a seed when a plant comes out of it? The seed itself has all the information it needs to become whatever plant God designed it to be, but the seed itself is not the final form of that plant. In fact, that seed becomes kind of a a shell, a husk, and and passes away, and the, the sprout comes out of it. That's what, he's, that's what he's talking about. Verse 37, he says, That which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be but a bare grain. You don't plant a tree in the ground. You plant a seed. That's what he's saying. Perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. God is the one who causes it to transform from a seed into an ear of corn or a tree. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Even every star is different. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a a corruptible body, but it is raised an incorruptible body. Paul is saying we're we're humans. We're always going to be humans. We'll have human bodies. So it's not like we're going to turn into fish or stars. We're all created unique and uniquely glorious and beautiful once raised to life in the light of the Creator. And we have just glimpses of that showing through now. Let's get back to this seed in verse 43. The seed is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. and The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Everything in its due order. The first man is from the earth, earthy. And I love that the LSB uses this word, earthy. Does anyone have a different word? I didn't actually look to compare translations. In verse 47, I don't think I've seen that word in other translations before. A man of dust. A man of dust. I like that, too. This is, ties right into last week's sermon, right? Dirt things. First man was a dirt thing, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. It sounds, it's kind of an awkward English, but it's, it's literal. That's what he's, he's saying. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we also bear the image of the heavenly. Probably should have read this passage last week, too. Now, I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the corruptible inherit the corruptible. She's saying we've, we've inherited Adam's sin, and we resemble the first humans in that way. We've inherited their DNA, so to speak. Well, literally, I guess. But we now also inherit Christ's salvation, Christ's metaphorical DNA. And we resemble him in that way. 
And these bodies that we have in this room, they're just not going to last for eternity. They're just not. But he continues in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. It's like the last thing that's going to happen. <laughs> For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on the incorruptible. This mortal must put on immortality. Humans are granted or given immortality by God. Like a seed that sprouts and becomes a plant, he's alluding again to a transformation, even a physical transformation of our bodies that will take place. And for some of us, that's really good news that our bodies will change because we reach a certain point in life and our bodies fail us. And the exact nature of this change, other than, yeah, broken bodies will be fixed, you know, sick bodies will be healed. Otherwise, you know, age and other specifics, it's really ambiguous. We're not given specifics of, of what our bodies will be like, how similar or how different to the bodies we have now will be. Uh, but even descriptions we have of the resurrected Jesus, first, are somewhat ambiguous, confusing. They're not very detailed. He was recognizable to people who knew him and even bore scars from his execution, the holes in his hands. And yet there were some who didn't recognize him right away. For whatever reason, whether for supernatural reasons or because he just looked a little bit different, we don't really know. And then when he leaves the earth, he basically just floats away into the sky and the next time someone sees him, he looks very different. You look at Revelation chapter 1 if you want to read a description of that. So we don't really know, you know what Jesus, his physical existence, what his body looks like now, uh, or what ours will look like in a million years from now. Basically, we'll be the same, but we'll be different. Got it? We'll be the same, but different. I think that's what the Bible is teaching. And regardless, one thing is, is clear. Once we graduate, so to speak, to our eternal bodies, or we put on this transformed body, it will be as triumphant garments of victory. In verse 54, he continues and says that, when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible, the mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. It's like once humans are living forever, death has been defeated. In verse 55, a quote from Isaiah, Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So it ends again with like this super dense declaration of the gospel again, and then this really powerful exhortation to remain steady, to be encouraged, not hoping, not praying that their labor would not be in vain, but knowing that our labor is not in vain if we labor in the Lord, if we are working in the Lord. The good news of Christ is only good 
if the resurrection is true. But because Christ did raise from the dead, everything he said is true, and he said that we get to share in the resurrection with him. Because Jesus promises us eternal life, we know that our labor now, even in these corruptible dying bodies, our work is not in vain. Rather, we are sharing in a much larger ongoing work of God in and through his people. Even if you want to look at it as that stage of a plant's life of being a seed, that's still a crucial stage of that plant's life. The work is not in vain. I'm going to read, I think the last major passage I'm going to go to today yeah, is Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to end there today. So if our labor is never vain as long as it's in the Lord, what is that labor? What is that work to be always abounding in the work of the Lord? What is that work? Now there's, there are lots of different ways you could describe it, but Galatians 6 has one description of what that looks like, and it's another exhortation to the church. It's um, encouraging them to behave in a certain way. Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and, also, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, take care of each other. Spiritually, in this case, he's talking about spiritual needs. That's the Lord's work, is to take care of each other, bear each other's burdens. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. A dose of humility there. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another I think what he's getting here is the value in pursuing excellence, do, doing what your hand finds to do with all your might, but not so that you can boast. Be proud of the work, but not for your own sake, I think is, is what he's getting at here. And do it for, for each other's sake. For each one will bear his own load. And the one who is instructed in the word is to share in all good things with the one who instructs him. Take care of the, the people, the teachers, He's naming some specific situations here, but the general message is that they should be taking care of each other. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. That's right. He's getting into that good old seed analogy again. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So it's cultivating that which has lasting and eternal value rather than cultivating, pursuing the opposite. And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Do good, take care of people, especially those within the church. But we know the church is also called to go out and and reach those who really need the love of Christ and need physical needs met, the homeless, the, the poor, the sick. 
Take care of each other. Do unto others. Love your neighbor. Share Jesus. And don't grow weary doing it. That's, that's the Lord's work. That's what it boils down to. And Paul's just encouraging the church that even when things seem uh, really chaotic or like nothing matters, it's all, it's, nothing is for nothing. It all matters, everything that we do for Jesus. And then if we, if we are doing something that, if we ever make mistakes or mess up and, and uh, do things that we realize Jesus, you know, after all, wasn't for Jesus, well, we can rest assured knowing that those things will pass away and won't, won't matter. Only the things that we do for Jesus will last. So let's pursue those things. Father, I just pray that you would help us as a family to serve you, to minister to Christ, to follow Jesus by serving each other with our whole lives, with our thoughts, our plans, our, our bodies and our desires, our actions, our speech, and um, especially our, our speech and what we say to each other. Help us to see and uh, become motivated by eternal values and eternal perspectives rather than by what might provide us the most gratification or the most pleasure or profit or power to me in this moment right now. Help us to, to see and to hear and to act and, and speak out of love rather than hate and out of compassion and not callousness and, and generosity and not greed. I just pray that you'd help us to represent you and that we would be beacons of light and of hope and peace by your grace and and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.